Good morning. How's everybody? It is good to be together. Now, what we're going to be getting into, we're starting a brand new sermon series today, and it's called Reasons to Believe. Uh, Over the next weeks, we're going to be looking at reasons why it's actually reasonable to be a Christian. And this morning, we're going to start it off by looking at reasons to believe God. Next week, Gary's going to come up and he's going to talk to us about reasons to believe the Bible. I'll be back the week after that, Lord willing, and try to give you some reasons to believe Jesus. And then Gary will finish up the series looking at reasons to believe the apostles. I hope you're interested in those topics because I think it's really a timely topic of conversation to have. We live in a cynical age, don't we? More so maybe than I've ever seen it. I haven't been around that long, but I think maybe it's because we have never in human history had access, such easy access to overwhelming amounts of information and opinions. You're only a mouse click away from finding an article on anything you want to find about. And not all of them are accurate. Not all of them are true. You hear about fake news in the news? And have you seen some fake news? And on, on the internet, you know that it's got to be true if they put it on the internet, right? <laughs> I got burnt one time a couple years ago uh, on, on my Facebook feed. There popped up a little article on, uh, on archaeology that proved the Bible. I was like, well, yeah, this is great. I'm glad they found these golden chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea. That's cool. So I passed it around. I put it on my Facebook page and a guy that I know from high school who isn't a believer, but who actually occupationally vets different articles and finds out if they're true or not. Let me know that I had put a loser on the Internet. And I was like, oh, boy. And ever since then, I look at all of these articles kind of with one eye going, now, maybe that's true and maybe it's not. And I have to go back and search it out. That's just the age that we live in. Uh, more and more people are, are doing that. Do you find yourself scrutinizing what you're told a little bit more? A little less quick to believe necessarily what you're told? Need to see some things and think it through? It's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. Well, whenever it comes to faith, we've got some of the same issues at play. In fact, a few weeks ago, I talked with a, a young man that I actually respect. I love him. He's a great guy. Uh, he used to go to church here. In fact, he grew up in this church, but he quit coming. He quit coming some time ago. It was, I think, maybe the beginning of the summer that I actually got a chance to talk to him about it. And I asked him why he quit. And what he told me was that he just wasn't sure anymore if God really existed or if the Bible could be trusted. He wasn't just wanting to reject the Christian lifestyle. Sometimes we assume whenever someone quits coming to church or they give up their faith, it's because something else is out there. That they want to party, they want to chase this, that, or the other, and it doesn't fit with Christianity, so they walk away to pursue that. That's not what this young man was doing. It's just that he could not continue to pay the price of being a disciple when he wasn't sure if it was real. We talked a little bit over the summer, and he's at a place where he is looking for reasons to believe. He's not looking for reasons not to believe. He made it very clear he is looking for reasons to believe. I had a couple of 
thoughts that ran through my head as I was talking with him. And one of them is, how does a kid grow up in this church and not know that Christianity is reasonable? How does a kid grow up in this church and not know if God is real, not have reasons to believe that God is real and to not know that the Bible is reliable? How does that happen? The other thing that went through my head was, I bet he's not the only one in this church that's having these questions. There may be some of you this morning that are dealing with some of those questions. And it can be really scary to come to church and say, I'm wondering, is this really real? People might think that you don't have a faith. Or they may accuse you of rejecting the faith. It can be kind of terrifying, can't it? Well... That's why we're going to go through this series, is to present to you some reasons to believe. And I believe that there are very good reasons to believe in God, to believe the Bible, to believe Jesus, and to believe his apostles. But one of the things i got to set out at the very beginning of this series is, even though there are good reasons to believe, good reasons will never replace the need for faith. It'll never replace the need for faith. There are good reasons, but faith is always required. Why? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. We call this this chapter, Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith. The author of Hebrews has a lengthy discussion about faith and gives us many examples of the icons of the faith. He starts it off, he says in verse 1, he says this. He says, faith is confidence. In what we hope for. And assurance about what we don't see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And without faith it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God requires faith. But why? You know, he's capable of making his existence absolutely irrefutable. He's able to make it so that it's undeniable. But why doesn't he do that? Why does he choose for us to have to have faith? Have you ever thought about that? I've at times wished that God would thunder from heaven and make it absolutely undeniable. I remember actually even praying that in a few situations. God, would you just speak? Shake the room. Shake the planet. Call attention. Don't let this just linger as this big question where people debate it. Let people know, why doesn't he do that? I don't know if I know the answer, but I've got an answer. And I think it's because if there was a way, if we, if there wasn't a way to deny him, if he made it that undeniable, that irrefutable, then we wouldn't have free choice. We wouldn't have free will. Because then it would be a matter of, no, I have to admit this is right. And God, for some reason, wants us to be able to choose. So I think he's always going to leave some room for doubt, some room for choice, because he wants us to trust him. He wants us to listen to him. 
But does that mean that God wants us to have blind faith? You know what I mean by blind faith, right? That's just this unquestioning, no, I don't have a shred of evidence for this, but I believe it anyway. Uh, Does God want us to have blind faith? I do not think so. If you continue to read on down in Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to come, Abraham is called the father of the faithful, right? And he's mentioned a couple times in this who's who of the faith. And I found this interesting statement in verse 19 of 11. He says that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Now, he's telling a story. The author is telling us a story about one of the time whenever God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And there's a lot of details to this story. But Abraham made a faithful decision, and it was based on reason. You know what it means to reason, don't you? Reason requires careful consideration of known facts. Abraham was held up as an icon of the faith, as the father of the faithful, and he was a man who reasoned, and that's how he came to his faithful decision. You see, the truth is, reason is not the enemy of faith. Reason is actually the bedrock of faith. Let me say that again. Reason is not an enemy to faith. Reason is the bedrock of faith that we stand on. Even Paul, at one point, he defended his faith before Festus, and he made this statement in Acts 26, 25. He says, what I am saying is both true and reasonable. True and reasonable. God gives us the ability to reason, and I think he expects us to use it. God wants you to be a thinker. God doesn't want you just to follow a man or to follow this or to follow that. He gave you the ability to think. He gave you the ability to reason. And I believe that he has provided us with all sorts of reasons to believe that he exists and to work out what it means to follow. In this series, we're not going to be able to give you every reason to believe that could be given. You know that, don't you? In fact, the topic that I'm going to try to talk about today could be a month-long lecture series or longer. And I'm going to try to do it in 30 minutes. So good luck to me, right? But we will be able to give you, we should be able to give you some good reasons to believe. Even though we can't give you exhaustive reasons, and though we will not be able to make it undeniable and irrefutable. There will still be an element of faith, but that shouldn't threaten anybody. You should carefully consider the facts and look at the arguments and decide for yourself, is this true and reasonable? See, one of the things that I believe at my core is the truth usually has the strongest argument. We should not be afraid of strong arguments or reasoning. And we shouldn't be so encamped in our faith and in our preferences and our beliefs that we would resist truth and follow where it leads. But that means that we have to use reason, which, like I said, I believe is the bedrock of faith, to carefully consider the arguments and see which one is the strongest argument. And it's going to be up to you, no matter what Gary and I or anybody else says up here. You're going to have to do the thinking. Use your own ability that God gave you to reason and decide which arguments seem true and reasonable. 
Has that set us up for the series? <laughs> Hopefully that gives us kind of a framework from where we're working from. This isn't just come in and listen to what we say and go home. This is consider what we say and do your own thinking and do your own research. There'll be lots more that you can uncover besides what we can provide for you. What do you think the first challenge that we're going to have to face is going to be? I find it interesting that when the Hebrew writer begins the discussion on faith, he begins by saying things like verse 3. The universe was formed at God's command. Does everybody believe that in the world? Some people do deny that, don't they? He goes on in verse 6, he says, anyone that comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So that's why we're starting with this particular topic today, reasons to believe God. Our big question that we're going to have to start with and try to try to find the way to reason through this and see if where the truth takes us, see where the strongest argument lies, is going to be a question, is God the creator or did everything just happen? How did we get here? Is God the creator or did everything just happen? You do know that there are people who argue that everything just happened. They argue against a creator God. And they argue that it just happened. So we're going to have to deal with this, aren't we? You know, Paul, remember he talked to, we just looked at what he said to Festus, that his faith was based on things that are true and reasonable. He also had this to say in Romans 1, verse 18 through 20. He says that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of those who in their wickedness suppress the truth. Forever. There have always been people who want to suppress the truth. That is just as true today as it was when Paul said it. And like I mentioned, our access to information and communication is just huge right now. And there are people who are vitally interested in suppressing the truth. And Paul said that the wrath of God was being revealed against those people. That's a wonderful study we can't get into this morning, what the wrath of God is and how it was being revealed and still is. I'm going to press on into the rest of what he says here to get it back to our topic. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them. God has not left us without reasons to believe that he exists. In fact, Paul says, he argues that he's made it plain. He says, because God himself has made it plain to them. What can be known about God is plain to them because God himself has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been understood and observed by what he made. So that people are without excuse. Paul's got an argument. His faith is based on some things that he's reasoned with. Is there a God who's a creator or did everything just happen? Paul is on the side of there's a creator God. And he tells you something about his reasoning and his argument. Did you catch what his reason was for believing that? There are two things that I notice in his, in his words here. The first argument or the first reason that Paul gives for believing that God exists 
is that we can know God exists by observing what he made. By observing. Observing is about taking the time to look closely. To notice things. The second thing in his argument is that everything that we can observe has both a beginning and a creator. He says, observed by everything that was made, everything he made, everything about God has been understood and observed by what he made. So we can know, according to Paul, his argument is, is that we can know that God exists by observing what he made. And the natural conclusion is that everything that we can observe has a creator, has a beginning and a creator. Seems like a simple argument, doesn't it? But does science tell us something different? Does science tell us something different? I've had people tell me this quote. Science and the Bible are incompatible. Science has proven the Bible to be inaccurate. Have you heard people say that to you? That's a really popular thing to hear these days. Most of the time, whenever people say that to me, it's because they don't want to reason. That's what I found in my personal experience. I can't say that's always 100% true. But most of the time, people throw that out to say, I don't want to look or consider this anymore. I've made my decision, and science is the answer. But does science really tell us that this isn't true, that there is no creator and that things didn't have a beginning? I want to show you something called scientific method. This is what science is based on, and it's not based on it recently. This goes way, way, way back. Scientific method consists first of systematic what? Observation. What did Paul say that he based his belief on? Observation. It's based on systematic observation, measurement and experiment, and the formulation and testing and modification of the hypothesis. That's a big mouthful, right? Let me show you a diagram that might make it a little easier to understand. Okay, so let's look at this real closely because i got to be honest with you. Coming into this lesson, I did not understand this. I knew there was a difference between scientific theory, which you see over here on this side, and scientific law, which you see on that side. But in my head, because I'm not a scientist, I thought that it worked like this, left to right. That a person comes up with scientific theory and then begins to test it and make their hypothesis, that scientific method that we talked about. And they end up proving it and it becomes scientific law. Did you know it's actually just reverse of that? Actually, it starts over here on the right-hand side. Scientific law describes what phenomena happened. That's what a scientific fact is or a scientific law is. Theories are over here and they attempt to explain why phenomena occur. How they get to their theories is through repeated successful predictions. Does science disagree with the Bible? Does science prove that the Bible is inaccurate? No. No. Scientific laws, in fact, do not conflict with the Bible over and over and over again. The scientific laws that describe the phenomena that has happened are verified in the Bible. In fact, there are things that the Bible talks about before scientists discovered that they were facts. 
There are too many of them to present to you today. One of them is that the earth is round. Uh, that was for a long time. I mean, for a long time, people thought that the earth was flat. I was absolutely blown away to find out that there are still people who believe that the earth is flat. And they argue for this. And I'm thinking, there are pictures from outside of the earth showing, no, it's around the like of your head. And they, no, no, they think it's still flat, which again tells you not everybody is reasonable with their arguments. And some people actually, they just wish certain things were a certain way and they, they turn to that and they will argue it to the death. And you've got to consider their arguments. I think the flat earthers are a little easier to dismiss their arguments with video and photos and all the other things. But the earth being round was something that was spoken of way back in the Old Testament before anyone was talking about it. Ocean currents in the Old Testament that talks about paths in the sea. Nobody knew what that was about for a long time. They figured it out. Scientific law does not conflict with the Bible, but scientific theories and scientific opinions often do. Remember, the theories are the attempt to explain something. But it's not just that those theories disagree with the Bible or with Christians. They disagree with each other. And they write papers saying it cannot be the way your theory says, and they give these brilliant... We're going to talk about evolution here in a second. With evolution, there are two camps. One of the camps says that evolution happened very slowly, progressively, over a very, very, very long period of time. Another camp of evolutionists say that the change happened here, and then nothing for a while, and then here again, and then nothing for a while, again, over a long period of time. And both of these camps write... Brilliant articles proving that the other cannot be right. Which I think they're both correct. I think that they do a very good job of proving why it couldn't have happened slowly and systematically over time. Got it. Strong argument. I think that's the truth. And I believe the argument that says that it couldn't have happened now and then later and then again, I think that's also strong and that's the truth. Why they still hang on to evolution is beyond me. Is evolution a stronger argument than creation? Does the scientific theory of evolution present a stronger argument for how everything that we can see, everything that can be observed, came to be than what we find in the Bible, that we have a creator God that in the beginning created all of it? Well, let's consider some of the arguments. And again, I cannot do justice to this today, but I want to show you a quote that comes from a book that I would highly recommend. It's called Evolution Impossible by Dr. John F. Ashton. The quote goes this way. The current scientific debate over the mechanisms of evolution demonstrate that evolution is not a proven fact of science. It is instead a wish of science. A fanciful hope in light of overwhelming evidence to the contrary that somehow a mechanical process to describe how life arose will be discovered. You might want to take some time with that quote and look at it. And honestly, I would love it if you would buy the book. It's not expensive. And read that quote in context. 
I gave you the page number. It's page 25. I can endorse this book because I've, I'm about halfway through reading it. And even though I'm not a scientist, I can read it and understand it. And you can too. And there is so much bad science that evolution rests on that it's hard to imagine why people consider it to be a fact. Evolution is a scientific theory. It is not a scientific fact. It's not a scientific law. It's an attempt to explain some things. As I showed you in the diagram, theories are an attempt to explain some things. The other day I was watching TV and Bill Nye the Science Guy. Everybody knows this dude, right? Wow. He's, he's interesting. And they, they rolled this clip over and over him saying, just emphatically, pounding the desk, evolution, the theory of evolution is a fact. The theory of evolution is a fact. And by the fourth time that, that they played that loop, I thought, theory and fact, you're, you're, this is like a not, how can you say a theory is a fact? Because a theory by its definition, man, this thing is giving me trouble today. This ear mic just keeps falling all over the place. Can you hear me all right? Okay. Evolution is a theory. It's not a fact. And I found out as I began to research this, the way evolution is taught in our school systems has changed a great deal since the 70s and 80s when I was in high school. Whenever I was in high school, it was taught in one way. And they, the books that I've read have said that somewhere about in the 1990s, they began teaching it a lot more aggressively and a whole lot more, no, this is the fact. This is, the, the, the jury is in. This is provable stuff. And so we have a whole generation, I would say, under the age of 40, that all they've heard in the educational institutions is that evolution is a fact. In fact, I think I'll be remiss if I, if I name specific entities, but highly credible scientific entities are constantly referring to it as a fact. So it's not just Bill Nye that keeps telling you that this is a fact. Is there any wonder why people just say, okay, well, this has been decided. And so they buy into evolution is the explanation as to how life arose. But evolution, science and mathematics, you know evolution started with a guy named Charles Darwin, or at least they give him the credit of it. The theory was starting to develop before his time, but that was back in the 1850s. That was a really, really long time ago. Did you know that science and mathematics have both advanced a great deal since the 1850s? Charles Darwin never had a chance to look at DNA. He never had a chance to study that out. That was so far before his time. And what we're finding out is that good science and mathematics have both advanced and that they're more and more frequently at odds with Darwinian evolution. One of the things that is a fact, and you must consider and reason through as you decide where you stand on this and what you believe, is that organic evolution has never been observed. What was Paul's argument based on? Observation. Observation and reason. And what's the scientific method? The first step in the scientific method is observation. Organic evolution has never been observed. Now, this may sound contradictory, especially if you went through school since the time that they began 
teaching this more aggressively, the theory of evolution in the high schools. Whenever I was in high school, Mr. Brown, my science teacher, let me know that adaptation is not evolution. You know what adaptation is in natural selection? Again, the idea is, is that a bunch of short-necked giraffes couldn't reach the fruit on the higher trees, and so eventually they couldn't mate, they couldn't pass on their genes, and so over time all the giraffes had longer necks. That's adaptation and natural selection. And that is true. That is an observable fact. I would also like to point out that giraffes are still giraffes. They didn't turn into monkeys or elephants or people. They're still giraffes. Adaptation and natural selection are not the same thing as evolution, but it gets called evolution these days. When I was in high school, it wasn't called evolution. There are about three different categories that get called evolution these days. The first one is that one, the adaptation and natural selection. And if you called it type one evolution... That might be how you could refer to it to keep it straight. The other type of evolution that gets looked at, the second type, is a mutation. For instance, uh, viruses and bacteria. Sometimes one bacteria will insert some of its genetic material into another bacteria, and it will change how that bacteria or that virus operates. That's why we have things like multi-strain resistant bacteria and viruses that all of a sudden that's how they learn and evolve, if I can use the word that way, into where the antibiotics that we have and the treatments that they have, they become resistant to it over time. But I want you to know something. It's still a bacteria. It's still a virus. It is still, if it was E. coli and it got some genetic material from something else that made it now be able to act more aggressively or to do something different or to survive penicillin or whatnot. It's not new genetic material that came from nowhere. It's new genetic material that came from something that already existed, and now it has changed a little bit, but it is still an E. coli bacteria. That's not organic evolution. Organic evolution states that something starts out as something else, and then through natural selection and adaptation, it changes over a very long period of time, or all at once, And but you get the idea, that all of a sudden it changes to the point that now it is no longer what it started out to be. That it started out as maybe a, a single-cell amoeba, but now it's become a monkey or a human. That kind of organic evolution has never been observed. Also, Evolution contradicts the scientific law of biogenesis. Now think about this again. That graph that I give you, that diagram, scientific theories attempt to explain things. Scientific fact, scientific law explains it. Biogenesis is basically the law that says that life can only come from life. But evolution is based on the premise that life can come from something that was at one time not alive. Is that a strong argument to you? You have to do your own reasoning. To me, it's not a very strong argument for that because I think it's really an important thing for us to look at. The next question is, to my mind, why is evolution presented as a fact if the observable evidence is so overwhelmingly against it?
Why is it presented as a fact? Because that's the way it's taught in our colleges, our universities, our high schools, and even our grade schools. It's taught as a fact. But if there's so much evidence against it, why is it taught as a fact? Well, here's a quote that I thought was very enlightening. It comes from a guy named George V. Kaler. I've given you the references, and you can go look this up and find it and read it all in context. But basically, this guy is is documenting a conversation that he has with a microbiologist. And the microbiologist is complaining about how hard his work is. And as they discuss this, the guy says to him, uh, well, wait a second, where did all this information come from? And the microbiologist makes this statement. He says, to be a microbiologist requires one to hold on to two insanities at the same time. One, it would be insane to believe in evolution. A microbiologist who's well-respected in his field says one of the two insanities to be a microbiologist and make money, that he has to hold on to the same time, one of the insanities is to believe in evolution. He says when you can see the truth for yourself, that it's not true. And two, the second insanity that you have to hang on to He says it would be insane to say you don't believe in evolution. All government work, research grants, papers, big big college lectures, everything would stop. I'd be put out of a job or relegated to the outer fringes where I couldn't earn a decent living. Do you hear what this guy is saying? He's saying that in the field of microbiology, they all know evolution is a lie. And because socially and where the power structures lie, that if they say it's a lie, they will be unemployable. They'll be cast aside as though they're nitwits and witch doctors. Because there is another agenda out there. Remember Paul started off by saying there are those who want to suppress the truth? There are people who do not want to admit that there could be a God and a creator who made all this stuff. And so they work to suppress the truth. And guess what some of our leading scientists are feeling? Pressure to go along with something that they know can't be true. So when you hear Bill Nye, the science guy, shout up and down that the theory of evolution is a fact, keep in mind what we're talking about here. And don't just swallow what he tells you. Do your own thinking. Reason. Is the scientific argument really better than the biblical one? I think actually the biblical argument is more scientific than the scientific argument. That's what I'm finding. There's one last category that I want to address here because I've actually heard it talked about here in our church a little bit. It's another question that we ought to ask. Could God have used evolution? Couldn't God have just... Made things happen. I wanted, and I'm already over time, I wanted to also include in this talk the scientific evidence about the Big Bang. The the Big Bang is, for a time there, I thought, sure, I don't know what banged her, but I know who banged it. You know, I, I, I believe that God could have used the Big Bang. The science behind the Big Bang theory is terrible. In my opinion, because the evolutionists needed to construct a framework that said that the earth is billions and billions and billions of years old, they had to look for something that would justify it, and so they turned to cosmology. 
And they, they said, hey, we can see that, that the earth all started with a big bang. And it just does not line up with observable facts. But I won't get into that. But I was willing to say, hey, that's possibility. Possibility that maybe the Big Bang is how God did it. And I've noticed that in recent years, more and more Christians have tried to compromise in the same way with evolution. And say, I believe that God is God and he created everything. But evolution is a fact. So God must have used evolution to create life. Well, I've already given you some good reasons to reject that. You'll have to make up your own mind. But let's just think about this for a second. Can evolution actually work with the Bible? Is that really reasonable? In order to make evolution a reasonable argument from the Bible, you have to do some things to Genesis 1 through 11. You're going to have to say that it's either an allegory, poetry that takes poetic license, or a myth. But the one thing that you have to say about Genesis 1 through 11 is that it is not literally true. This is a dangerous place for a Christian to stand. Because if you're willing to say that the very beginning of the Bible is not literally true and you can't really trust it for what it says, then where else do you get to say that in the Bible? If it can be wrong and misrepresentative of the facts in this place then couldn't it also be wrong and misrepresented of the facts in that place and another place and another place? And before very long, we're deciding what we want to believe the Bible says and twisting it. Uh, Winston Churchill once said to his secretary, just give me the facts. I'll twist them any way I want to to make my argument. And we can come that way to the Bible if we're not careful. Did you know that right now, they call them theistic evolutionists. That's what they mean. Those Those Christians that believe that evolution is how God brought things about. Did you know that there are no less than 20 different theistic evolution camps? There are at least 20 different camps that try to explain how the Bible can be reconciled with the theory of evolution. Why do you think it takes so many? Because it's hard to try and fit that square peg into this round hole. It's really hard. It's not easy to do at all. I'll, I, I'm going to save you the rest of my lecture so we can get out of here. But I'm going to give you this statement. And this is just reason. You tell me if this makes good sense to you. If evolution happened. And what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is the question about whether or not God might have used evolution. And remember, truth usually has the strongest argument. You have to use your thinker. And you have to decide and use reason, carefully consider the facts and think what you think the strongest argument is. But let me present this last argument to you this morning. If evolution happened, then death was widespread before man evolved. Would have to be. That's the way evolution works. But if death preceded man, the way evolution would demand that it did. And was not a result of Adam's sin. Then sin is not the cause of death. Right? For evolution to be, be a good argument that God used evolution, then it means that sin didn't come through Adam. It came through a natural process of evolution. Which means that the entire Bible is wrong.
not just Genesis 1 through 11. Because if sin wasn't caused, if, de- if death wasn't caused by sin, then we don't need a savior. Does that make sense to you? For me, this is a very strong argument for rejecting evolution. The bad science was strong enough. But trying to cut a deal with that bad science and work it somehow into the Bible, to me, seems really, really dangerous. But you're, I'm going to leave that with you to consider. I'm going to leave you to do the, your own reasoning and to think about it. We're going to close up this morning. I am looking forward to this series. It's going to be a different kind of series than what we usually do. Kind of tell that, right? But I really think that there are good reasons to believe that God exists. I believe that it's the best argument out there. I'm hoping that you do too. But do your own thinking. The challenge in the series is going to be for you to come up with your reasons. Truth has the strongest argument. Do your own thinking. Look at the arguments. Consider carefully. And we'll come back and we'll look next week. Gary will tell us about whether or not the Bible, if there's a reason to believe that the Bible is true and authoritative, that we can actually stand on it. If you would, let's pray and call it a morning. Heavenly Father, thank you again for loving us and for allowing us to come together and to talk openly and honestly about the issues of the Christian life. Father, we, we live in an age of, of cynics and uh, strong opinions in a very divisive age where it's not okay to disagree. And, and it's not okay to reason together and to pursue truth and to listen to the arguments. Father, that's the way it is out there in the world. But I pray that it won't be that way here. I pray that we won't be just blind faith, uh, the preacher said it so I'll believe it kind of people. And I pray that we won't be afraid to follow where the truth takes us. Father, I pray that you'll help us, give us the, the wisdom to be able to reason and to find out what is both true and reasonable. And Father, help us to take those reasons with us everywhere we go because we live in a world of skeptics and they need to hear something more than, well, I just feel Jesus or I had this personal experience with Jesus, so I believe it's true. They need to know if there are reasons more solid than than just my personal feelings as to why they should believe. Father, we love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.